big idea, but so young. It will never work. Zero experience. We'll see. Welcome back to Dorm Room to Boardroom, the podcast that delves into the incredible journeys of entrepreneurs who've kickstarted their companies while navigating college life. I'm your host, Maddie Rifkin, the brains behind Mount and your guide on this entrepreneurial expedition. Join me as we dive deep into the stories of our accomplished guests, discovering the pivotal moments, challenges overcome, and the strategies that propelled them to success or ultimately failure. This is Dorm Room to Boardroom, where the journey from campus to corporate isn't just a story. It's a roadmap for the next generation of game changers. Today, I'm thrilled to welcome a fellow female founder, Rebecca Wong, founder of Red Leader Tech, a revolutionary tech startup aiming to boost resolution and cost effectiveness of LiDAR sensors. Welcome to the show, Rebecca. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited. Yeah, absolutely. We're going to really dive into your story here and, and hopefully uncover your, you know, your, your secrets and successes to, to founding <laughs> a company. The way I like to kick off the show, though, is basically giving you 60 seconds to basically share with our listeners uh, you know, the age you founded the company, school you founded the company at, uh, and then really what Red Leader Tech is all about. Yeah, so we started the company back in 2018. I was I was a junior, Jake, my co-founder, was a senior. I was, I want to say 20. <laughs> I think I wasn't 21 yet. Um, and yeah, our whole premise is using signal processing techniques and communications theory to increase the performance um, of LiDAR sensors. So LiDAR sensors are 3D, basically 3D cameras that are used for self-driving cars, um, industrial automation, robots, basically eyes for the machines. And our whole shtick is using better math so that robots can see better. So I would say classify that as pretty deep tech? Yes, we are definitely deep tech. And for some background, what was your, like what were you studying while at Stanford? Uh, I was studying electrical engineering, so both um, my co-founder and I, Jake, we met as EE students, so it did come translate pretty directly from kind of the stuff that we were doing, like the reason that we were interested in this space and this problem was because we had studied a lot of signal processing and communications theory in school, and we had this question, which was like, we've seen how this stuff has transformed, you know, going from 2G to 5G on cellular GPS used to be like a machine, huge, only used in like military stuff. Now you have, you know, call it centimeter level accuracy GPS on your cell phones. Like all of this is transformed because of better, better signal processing, better math. Uh, and we're like, I think this is the way of the future for 3D sensing using lasers. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's fascinating and a, a really good approach to it. Um, one thing I am curious is how you met Jake. I know it was in class, but how did you decide that he was the one you wanted to start a business with? And, and you know, how did that relationship unfold? <laughs> yeah, it, it strangely, I think for us and probably for a lot of kind of more engineer type founders, like it wasn't a thing that either of us had really intended to do. It was like the kind of thing where it's like, here's an interesting problem. Um, so we actually had met, we were classmates, but we actually met kind of most directly through the Stanford Student Space Initiative, which is the engineering club on campus filled with uh, half like really hardcore space nerds and half just like engineers who wanted to work on cool projects that happened to be around space. So Jake had led a optical communications research group um, for satellites. So they launched 
us one or two satellites um, using laser walkie-talkies, basically. And then I was uh, launching rockets out in the middle of the Mojave Desert. <laughs> so I was oh my gosh. doing a lot of really fun, um, high-powered rocketry stuff. Um, so I think, like, I when he approached me about this, like, question and had, like, we kind of were talking about is this going to be a company kind of a thing. Like, I think I had a good, even though like we hadn't worked super closely together at that point, I kind of knew that we had a similar kind of like, we like learning by doing, because that's like what we had been doing for the past three or four years by just like, I had never built a rocket before until I started college. And then like, you know, a year later, I was like, I've, I've launched like a dozen, two dozen rockets. Um, so part of our our entrepreneurial journey, I guess, was like, we didn't think when we started college that we we're like, oh, I like, really want to be a founder. Like, it was just like, there was this problem. We had I, what we thought was an interesting solution or like a space that we wanted to explore. And it kind of just turned out that starting a company was for us the best way to like go and explore that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's fascinating. Honestly, a better co-founding story than my own. My first co-founder for Mount, again, also in college at Northeastern. Uh, and I honestly simply did not want to build a business by myself. I was a bit timid as a freshman and afraid to to step out into the entrepreneurial world. And also, I did not want to pitch by myself. Like, I used to be terrified of public speaking. Um and so I made the really smart decision of just turning basically to the person sitting next to me in one of my classes. And I was like, <laughs> Hi, I don't know you, but do you want to found a business with me? Needless to say, did not work out. But uh, yeah, I would say let's don't found a business that way. <laughs> <laughs> so you have a much better story than mine. <laughs> well, you know, they have that thing about like every, you know, like a founder, they start like three companies, like one that's not a success one that is a great success and one that's kind of in the middle, but it's like a uh, flip of a coin about like what order those three are going to be. So like, at least you got that first one out. Yeah, exactly. That's, I mean, that's a better way to look at it for sure. <laughs> um, awesome. I mean, okay. So you're, uh, you know, in college, you now have a co-founder. What were the next steps for you guys in terms of building the business? The first three to six months, we were still figuring out what a startup was and so we did um we did cardinal ventures which was the stanford run kind of accelerator program that helped kind of get us get get us going as far as like incorporating and you know having corporate attorneys and all of that kind of like operations work um and then for us the big focus as, as a deep tech company was always like uh, basically building prototypes. So we spent a lot of time in those first years, honestly, just doing engineering because it was, can can this like mathematical theory go beyond just like a Python notebook and then into a small scale model? Okay, can that small scale model still stand up when you scale it up larger, longer distances, more lasers, and then like solving all the problems that come with bringing theory into, into the real world? Um, and having to invent a lot of new, like at, at every step, you're like, okay, well, this should translate. And then you realize it doesn't. And then you have to like go and invent more things to make this new thing work. Um, so yeah, I think, yeah, that was kind of a lot of what we spent our time doing the first year or two. 
Yeah, absolutely. And during those first, you know, year or two, Matt was in a similar boat where we had a lot to prove in the beginning. We had to build some product. I feel like most startups hopefully start that way. Uh, were you guys raising funding at that point? Was Stanford stepping in and helping with resources? Like, how did you guys do the financial piece of the startup? Yeah, so we had a really interesting and like super like super lucky <laughs> route into this like the reason that red leader became a company at all was that basically jake happened to meet a vc who had like come to the stanford ee like seminar thing to do a talk at the request of this old professor that she used to have um and and then I, I guess Jake asked, well, I wasn't even there, I wasn't in this class. <laughs> Jake asked her a bunch of questions and she was like, you seem like you have a lot of questions. Why don't we meet for coffee like next week? And after that meeting, she was like, I, I'll write you guys like a $15,000 check to just go and like buy some parts off of Amazon to see if your thing has any legs at all. Um, and <laughs> for a bunch of college students who previously had been getting paid negative dollars to go and build things. We're like, $15,000, this is, this is incredible. Like, um, so that was like our first check from Hustle Fund. That was Elizabeth Yen at Hustle Fund too. Uh, oh, yes. Very, I know Hustle Fund well, it's a good one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So like they were the reason that we were then like, okay, hold on, let me like, we need to corporate, incorporate a company, have a bank account for you to like give us this, this check. Um, but then, because of that first check, then we were able to use that to build like tiny prototype. Then we used that to basically go and raise a little bit more. So then we raised like a 50K check from, yeah, 50K, maybe 100K check from a couple of other small funds. And then after, yeah, after like two or three months, then we actually went out to like raise proper for our, like our pre-seed. And then that turned into about a million dollars. And then at that point, that was like, you know, enough, enough runway to like pay the four of us that were working on it, you know, through the summer. We, we did do the Stardex um, student fellowship program. So that helped fund us that first summer. Um, yeah, I think our story has always been one of just like, <laughs> I, I always make this joke with people, which is like, like, we just kept going for as long as we could. And that that turned out to be like six years. So yeah. there wasn't ever this like super, um, I don't know, pivotal moment to me that was like, and now we're like a real, it was just like, well, if we only have three months, we'll do it for three months. And then that three months became six months and that six months became 12, became totally. 24. And then, yeah, here we are six years later. <laughs> Yeah. And you'll, you'll probably be six years from now looking back and being like, oh my God, it's 12 years later. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Mount was a uh, very similar, you know, we took it one step at a time, one check at a time until we ended up raising our pre-seed uh, and had yeah. some money to kind of, you know, scale up and actually make this, you know, pretty big. Um, but I do think that is probably how majority of startups that start in college happen. It's like, you have a little extra time, play around with some stuff, figure out some product market fit and, and go from there. Yeah, yeah, I do think it it just doesn't look quite the same as like, you know, I, I guess if you do like YC or something, like you probably go out and raise like a much larger round all at once. I feel like when you're in college, you don't, you don't have that luxury, I guess. Um, it, it is a lot more just like, we'll, we'll get this check and then we'll see how long that lasts us and we'll see if we get another check at the end of that. 
uh, and until you can have enough. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I just, I just ground underneath you. So I guess a question on my mind now is, uh, you know, you've gone through a few raises six years later. What was it like getting from a seed to a series A company? And how was that? I guess, how have things changed now that you have classified yourself as a series A? Because I think in the startup world, you hear series A and people are like, oh, shit, that's pretty serious now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it definitely was a um, step function change. I mean, so just in terms of the like maturity of the company, like our series A was a price round. Everything prior had been safe. So there is there was a level of like, you know, you're you're graduating from like the the, the small leagues now just in terms of like yeah the the maturity and like the financials i guess of, of the of the company um for us it was a little bit of this mark of okay we've done enough r d to prove that this technology like this idea that we had initially you know way back in 2018 has legs to stand on like we've, we've built enough of our prototypes to show the kinds of performance improvements you can get to show that this kind of technology is scalable and applicable on any type of hardware platform. Now we need to go and like commercialize it and uh, greatly you know, deploy it at scale and get, get it out from, from the lab of just like one unit, two units to several dozen, several hundred. Uh, yeah, so that for us was like probably the biggest difference of like going from purely R&D to still doing some R&D, of course, but like more of the emphasis on the commercialization aspect. Yeah, absolutely. And when, so I, this is honestly just a question on my mind, just because Mount is in like more of the consumer software space. So for us getting to a series A means, you know, that million dollars in revenue and other traction proof points. Is it the same for deep tech? Or did you guys find that it was different metrics for your series A? There's basically no metrics that anyone can point to in deep tech because every company is so different. And like we were still pre-revenue when we raised our Series A. Like we had done some like proof of concepts, but there wasn't like recurring revenue in the same way that like software companies have more defined metrics. But I think that's like pretty much whether you're deep tech or you're med tech. Like if you're not a SaaS company, like it's there's not a good standard because every company, like you kind of have to convince the investors, like these are the metrics we believe are important. And then you convince them like why those are the right metrics for your company. So for us, it was like, yeah, we're, we're a deep tech company. Like there's not going to be a SaaS fee <laughs> to this. Like what you should be looking at is the maturity of the product, these POCs that we have, like the small, like the partnerships that we do have, like the reference calls played a big part in that. Um, and then even for us, like a series A deep tech, like there's this joke that like deep tech companies are always like kind of held back a grade <laughs> in terms of like funding. <laughs> so like series A is still very early stage in terms of like how investors look at it for deep tech. So there is a little bit of like the bar is still very high because so few investors are willing to invest in deep tech. But whereas like a series A software company like you could not raise a series a if you didn't have customers right <laughs> like you need to be showing a certain level of um commercial traction with deep tech for us it was more much more 
we've gone as far as we can with the call it two-ish, three mil of pre-seed and seed combined funding to demonstrate that this technology was real, that we made it real, and that it did what we set out to do. But now we need, you know, this next 10 mil to go and commercialize it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's just so interesting because we have been thinking about a Series A, maybe, you know, next year sometime, and just talking to some of our investors that are on uh, our current cap table, other investors I'm just friends with. Like, I feel like right now, especially in this, this environment where it's really hard to raise, given whatever type of startup you are, like no one has a clear cookie cutter answer on what you need for a yeah. Series A. It more comes down to, do you have a convincing and compelling story and product? And like what you said, I thought it was brilliant, where it's like, you need to believe in your metrics as a company. And that's what investors need to get behind. It's not what metrics they think because they don't know your business. Um, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So, I mean, advice for our listeners, because most of our listeners are in college thinking about starting a company or already have, you know, when you do get around this seed series A mark, it's important to just have conviction around your own company and don't let investors throw you off your game and convince you your metrics are not what they want. It should be the other way around for sure. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Because I think, I think every company is unique kind of by definition, like you're probably doing something that hasn't already been done or you're doing something different or better. Um, and yeah, like investors definitely will try to, I want to say like pigeonhole you almost, or like try to <laughs> convince, like be like, okay, well, I'm like, they're, they're just trying to pattern match, right? Like they want to compare this to either a company that they've already invested in, like, oh, at the stake, you know, they were doing this or whatever. Um, and I guess it's up to you to decide, like, if that's a fair comparison or not. And if it's not, you need to be able to justify, like, why your company, what you're doing, your market or whatever is, is different. And actually, this is the right way to think about it and the right metric to be looking at. Totally. Yeah, I mean, honestly, yeah, I couldn't have said it better. I think that would be perfect for those thinking about raising. Um, so switching gears here slightly, because I'm fascinated by this other portion of your founding history. Um, I guess just to preface this for the audience, what I have found right now is that uh, Forbes 30 under 30, very divisive topic right now, especially on TikTok for those that have seen. I mean, the list for this year was uh, announced, you know, a week or two ago and TikTok took to uh, the the list and, and did what they did. And half of the people of the world are convinced people paid to get on the list. Other half are uh, very much at the belief that it is hard work. You know, there's a system to this and I'm more in that camp, but would love to know what it was like for you to get named to the list. Uh, and then if it had any good impacts afterwards. Yeah, I <laughs> the funny thing is I almost missed the um, the announcement. Like it just it got filtered out in my inbox. Oh, no. uh, what did it happen? Because I, I get so many emails that like I have pretty aggressive filters. So, like only like really important things are like in my main inbox. And so I didn't actually realize that the at the time, like they don't tell you when the list is being released. Um, and I just saw like other people posting on social media and I was like, oh, that's interesting. Like I didn't see anything in my inbox. I guess I like didn't, you know, we didn't get on the list, but I like went <laughs> to go look anyways. And then I like scrolled away to the bottom and like we're there. And I was like, wait, <laughs> what? Then I go back to my email. Then I look explicitly for it. And then I see it in there. I was like, wow, I was about to just delete this. <laughs> um, so 
yeah, that, that is one thing. Like, they keep everything under wraps pretty, pretty strongly. Um, there's, yeah, I mean, it was a very pleasant surprise. Um, definitely, you know, helped us get some, like, social media out, which we were never great about <laughs> as, as a deep tech company. Like, too, too much time spent building prototypes, not enough time spent telling other people about what we were building probably um but yeah it i don't really know like the whole process about how they do the selections i do i do know that like or i'm told at least and i believe that like um having other people like do recommendations for you especially people who have like been on the list um i think maybe our investors may have um done nominations for us or um other founders that we knew, uh, but yeah, it was, it's, it's a nice thing to have, but I don't think it's, it shouldn't be like a, a defining characteristic of, of a founder, <laughs> I guess. Totally. Yeah. I mean, if you're not on the list, it does not mean that you are an exceptional founder. You probably are, uh, you know, but you did hear it first here, you know, like you do not pay to get on the list. Uh, it is, <laughs> there is a system, there is a process. Network and nominations absolutely help. I mean, just in life, having a good network can't hurt. Yeah, yeah. In whatever you do, not even just this list. Uh, I, you know, I learned that as a founder. That's my one piece of advice I give to people now is just have a network, build your network, because you never know when you're going to need help from someone else. Uh, cool. And if you already have that network, it's less awkward asking for help if you know who they are versus randomly reaching out for help. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that's, that's great advice. Um, Rebecca, so I have kind of one to two more questions for you. These are short little podcasts. So we're getting to the end of this episode. But what I want you to leave our listeners with is one, how did Stanford specifically help you guys in growing your business, whether it be with actual money, other resources? What did that look like? And then the last question we end with is what is your one piece of advice you would give to current college founders or just college students that want to become founders? to get started. That's good. Um, so on the first one, I I guess for, for better or for worse, I mean, the Stanford name does carry a lot in, in the minds of VCs, especially VCs like abroad, I think, when like there's maybe less signal for them to go off of and you're in university. So I do think to some extent, like the, the brand name of like the university does help at least for us also like when it's like deep tech and i'm like oh you guys like stanford he's like you're clearly smart so like no one ever was like questioning us on the basis of like the technology idea i guess um could have been fraud i suppose but um you know i think that part helped like getting the benefit of the doubt i mean the other to me the biggest thing was meeting my co-founder like that was that only happened because we were both at Stanford in the same circles. And so to what you're saying about like that network building, I mean, they always say like your biggest opportunity for like, I don't know, things happening, I guess, or opportunities are not from your first degree connections, but like your second degree connections. So the fact that like Jake and I were not like best friends um, in college, it was like, we knew each other, we had been around each other, like, I would say we were in each other's networks um, and it was, it just so happened that this thing came out of that relationship, even though 
like it wouldn't have worked probably if we were total strangers and it probably wouldn't have worked if we were like best friends either. Um, and to your second question about like, I guess, was it advice for college founders today? Yeah, exactly. I think it's pretty, pretty generic, I guess, but uh, I think my advice is like not letting other people dictate the, the path that you should be on um, or being convinced that there is a like right or wrong way to go about being a student founder. Um, like for me, like the probably, probably the most contrarian thing that I've done as a student founder is like actually finish all my schooling. <laughs> like I, I didn't drop out, I, I finished my undergrad and then I finished my master's. Um, but that was like, I wanted to do that. I liked the learning part of school. Um, I actually found like my master's classes super interesting. And that, like, it was just like, I wanna do that. I'm gonna figure out a way to make that work um, with being a founder, even though like, probably most investors would be like, no, you need to be like working full time. And uh, I was working full time when I did my master's, but it was just, it's COVID and I could do it part time and all this stuff. But even then they probably, you could make an argument like that's like, you should be spending, you know, that extra time, you know, working at your company. But at the same time, it's like, well, if this is going to give me an interesting perspective, I'm learning new things that I can bring back to work. Um, and it's helping me keep my sanity <laughs> as a founder. Like, I think there's an argument to just do what works for you, um, regardless of what the like mainstream narrative says of like, you know, a, a great founder needs to be, you know, waking up at 5 a.m. and then doing a cold plunge and then a meditation and whatever. Like, uh, I think you, it's your journey to find what is going to make you successful and, and sustainable in the long run. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with that more. And I mean, the one interesting tidbit is that uh, learn that lesson early where, you know, you got to stick to your guns, stick to your opinion. And everyone along the way is going to tell you this isn't going to work. This is the world's worst idea. I would do it this way. You know, I think actually you're doing this the complete wrong way. Uh, you know, maybe your company is something else like you don't ever stop hearing that. Like I'm four or five years into this and it's still happening to this day. Yeah. And if you can learn how to tune it out, not let it sway your decision-making process and you just keep pushing through it, it's the best lesson you could learn early on because it's not going to stop. It's just going to get worse actually. <laughs> uh, yeah. And you know, if you can't learn that lesson and you keep getting pulled in every which way in every direction, you're not going to move the company forward. Um, and so yeah, learn that lesson early and learn how to say no. Yeah, take everything with a grain of salt. Like even, I think especially as like young founders, I definitely, when I was younger, even sometimes now, like over-indexed on the perceived expertise that people older than me had because they were older by like several decades. So I'm like, well, surely these people know what's best <laughs> or like what I should do. And maybe they do, maybe they don't. Like that's that's your decision to make about whether or not you're going to listen to these people or not. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, so for our listeners out there, I would keep that in mind for sure. Um, Rebecca, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the pod, uh, dorm room to boardroom. Is there anything else that maybe our listeners could help you with uh, that they should look out for? Like, I guess this is our time where we roll out the red carpet to you and you get to get the ask back. <laughs> I appreciate it. Um, 
nothing comes to mind right now. I just am rooting for all the young founders out there. I know it is a brutal journey, um, but it's probably like <laughs> probably one of the like most formative like learning experiences you can have in your early adulthood that so many people won't have because you know there's safer things and probably more <laughs> there's probably easier ways to make money <laughs> than being a founder um so i applaud anyone who is willing to go out there and, and do it absolutely and for those uh listening go follow rebecca on linkedin you know look up the company follow the journey Tune into our next episode because we're continuing to bring you the best of the best college founders that are out there to tell their stories uh, and follow Mount along the way as well. So, Rebecca, thank you so much uh, and have an absolutely good day. Thank you so much for having me.